The 57th Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, Rishi Sunak. A united cabinet that brings experience and stability to the heart of government. What the opposition are saying is, no way, you're just running scared because you think you're going to lose the election when you go to the people. He got trounced by the former Prime Minister, who herself got beaten by a lettuce. <laughs> You want a Prime Minister who convinces the public they are in charge of the economy and looking after their best interests. I am a fighter and not a quitter. I am resigning as leader of the Conservative Party. He said mistakes were made in the last government. That raises some really serious questions about our democracy. Helping you cut through the noise, this is Waxing Political with Phil and Connor. Citizens of the world, welcome to the inaugural episode of Waxing Political, a podcast for A-Level and beyond. We recognise that we live in an uncertain world, a world where politics has become very difficult to get your head round sometimes, and if you're taking A-Level politics, you're going to need to be paying extra attention to what's going on around you. And that's precisely where we come in. My name is Connor. And I will be joined on this podcast by my right honourable and learned friend, Phil. How are you doing today, Phil? Oh, fantastic. Thank you, Connor. And I hope all our listeners are loving life as well. That's right. If you're not studying A-level politics, I still think there's a lot to get out of this interesting discussions and debate. But if you are, this is going to be crucial to help you meet the assessment objectives. There's AO1, information, knowledge, examples. And this podcast is going to give you the most up-to-date and relevant examples that you won't be finding in the textbooks because they've only just happened. Then there's your AO2, explanation, understanding. We're going to delve a little bit deeper into why things happen in the crazy world of politics. Then there's your AO3, which is your judgment and evaluation. You're going to hear a lot of different opinions on this podcast and hopefully listening to us will help you to develop your own ones as well. Yeah, the I, th I think the key point in this podcast is that we're going to be pulling stories right from the news, right from current affairs. Uh, so these are going to be things that you're not going to find in your textbooks, um, but that we're going to be able to break down for you, and you're going to be able to use them as very relevant examples in your essays and in your exam papers. Uh, so with that in mind, what are we talking about today, Phil? Today we're talking about the 57th Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, Rishi Sunak. And we know, of course, that he has just got the job. He's our youngest ever Prime Minister, our richest ever, our first British Asian Prime Minister. But the process that got him the top job has been a little bit different to what would normally happen, hasn't it, Connor? Yeah, it has. And um, it's come around very quickly as well, I would say, for, for, him, for his career in politics. He's been an MP for, I think, seven years now. He's first elected in uh, 2015, so he's been an MP for seven years. Um, and he's already got the top job, even though this is his uh, second crack at the whip, as it were, his second attempt at becoming Prime Minister after a previous failed attempt. It's still only been seven years, which, across political careers generally, is a very short period of time. Compared to um, uh, one of his predecessors, David Cameron, who uh, was elected as Conservative leader after six years as an MP, which at the time was mm. considered a very short period of time, he still had to wait a few more years before he was able to get the keys to number 10. So for Rishi Sunak, that's come around even sooner, just seven years after becoming an MP. He took part in the previous leadership contest that took place over this summer, summer of 2022, uh, which was ultimately unsuccessful, 
Uh, he was defeated by Liz Truss, but after Liz Truss's uh, complicated, shall we say, period in office, uh, ultimately leading to her demise, he ended up taking her place. One of the questions I keep getting asked from people who are either doing the A-levels or are not is why are we not having a general election? Why have Conservative MPs been able to choose our new Prime Minister? It's a really divisive issue that a lot of people don't seem to be on board with. So can you shed some light on this Conservative MPs process that has enabled Rishi Sunak to get the top job, Connor? Yeah, sure. So the polls are saying that the majority of people want an election, so why aren't we having it? Well, essentially, political parties in the UK elect their leaders internally via slightly different processes, but all largely based around the idea of MPs having an initial choice and then the final choice going to the wider party membership, people who pay a few quid a year to be able to be a member of the party and then to vote in those leadership elections. That's exactly what the Tories did in the contest they held this summer to replace Boris Johnson. The MPs whittled the choice down to two candidates, Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss, and they were then voted on by the wider party membership, the party membership eventually choosing Liz Truss to be the leader. This time round, there was no formal election because there was only one candidate, Rishi Sunak. He was the only one who was able to secure the support of the majority of MPs in his party, and so it was logical for him to just take over by default. Now, the difficulty with this is that in this scenario, the Conservatives aren't just electing a new leader, they're electing a new prime minister, literally the most powerful person in the country. So there should be some element of democratic choice involved. But what he's saying, and what the Conservatives as a whole are saying, is that he and his party were elected in 2019 on a manifesto, not specifically Boris Johnson, on a manifesto which they would have five years to implement. And all Rishi Sunak is doing is sort of following through on that in the same way that Boris Johnson did. What the opposition are saying is, no way, you're just running scared because you think you're going to lose the election when you go to the people. You know, we, we may be the case that we are a parliamentary democracy and we elect parties rather than individual candidates, but a lot of emphasis mm. is placed on the party leader, and that's part of what helped Boris Johnson to get elected in 2019. So the opposition argument is, at the end of the day, you're a new prime minister, you've got new ideas, new ways of doing things, and it's absolutely right that you should take that to the people in an election and make sure that this is the path they want to go down and give them the opportunity to choose another mm. path if they so wish. It's an argument made all the more convincing by Britain's increasingly presidential system. We've seen leaders become more and more of a significant factor in general elections. And you have to wonder, particularly when you see the contrast in polling between Johnson, between Truss, between Sunak, whether they really represent the same party or if those same people, particularly in the north of England, particularly red wall voters who voted for Boris Johnson, would vote for Rishi Sunak. And you have to wonder if there's a pragmatism to the reason behind the Conservatives' decision not to call a general election. It's not a point of principle, but it's a point of survival, isn't it? We wouldn't win a general election right now, so let's hold on. It's sort of as if you handed a piece of work to your favourite teacher to mark, and they just couldn't be bothered, okay? They give it to a different teacher, they mark it, they give it you back and say, this person you don't like as much, or you don't respect as much as mark the work for you. And you'd be a little bit put off, wouldn't you? They'd say, we're from the same school, we're from the same college, it's the same thing. But in an individualistic postmodern society, people don't see parties or schools or corporations as a singular entity anymore. It's about the individual and the relationship you have with them. A lot of people, uh, like him or hate him, love Boris Johnson and connected with him and wanted him to be the Prime Minister. It's not clear if those same people want Liz Truss or Rishi Sunak to be Prime Minister. So that raises some really serious questions about our democracy. 
the sort that you might well be asked in your A-level politics exams. Now it's time to take the knowledge you've learned from this segment and to apply it to an A-level politics essay with our first A-level link of the day. Waxing Political with Phil and Connor. Evaluate the view that British democracy is currently suffering from a participation crisis, or similarly worded questions about the broken nature of our democracy or its need to reform, is another area that could easily appear in your A-level politics exam. And therefore, it's a great idea to brush up on the most recent examples and evidence, such as the rise to power of Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak. Now, initially, this seems to be much better evidence in favour of the statement. The view that our democracy is indeed broken and that participation is indeed in crisis. Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak were not elected by the general public. The difference being Rishi Sunak was not even elected by Conservative members, just Conservative MPs, 197 of them, or 55% of the parliamentary party. Whilst many people voted for the Conservatives in 2019, they're a virtually unrecognisable party in 2022, having changed their leader twice and their policy on many occasions. If democracy is supposed to be about power to the people, it is unclear how this is achieved by leaving the people out of such crucial decisions such as who our Prime Minister should be and what economic approach to the current cost of living crisis should be. The argument against this would be that we live in a representative democracy, and with politics being a constantly changing area, the party of power should be trusted to do whatever they think is best, and if we no longer trust them, we have the right to vote them out in the next general election. With this being said, there is some interesting evidence that suggests the Conservative leadership contests actually have interesting new solutions to the participation crisis. For example, it is often said that 16-year-olds will be left out of the political process due to not having the right to vote. But this was solved by the Conservative leadership contest in the summer. In fact, they went one better, giving 15-year-olds the right to vote for either Liz Truss or Rishi Sunak, and this might increase their political participation or their engagement with politics generally. Furthermore, the Conservatives ventured into new territory when it came to e-democracy. Had two MPs reached the threshold of 100 in the second Conservative leadership election of 2022, the solution would have been an online vote, a bold and modern step forward, allowing more people to participate and democracy to be more accessible, potentially raising participation. However, with the vulnerable and risky nature of online democracy, and the fact that only 15-year-old Conservatives, not the whole country, would have been enfranchised, it's clear to see that the participation crisis is a long way from being solved. Back to the podcast. So if we look at the cabinet, first of all, there's, I think there's a few names in there that might raise a few eyebrows at first glance. There's uh, quite a range of characters in there that also haven't necessarily supported uh, Rishi Sunak throughout the campaign. Isn't that right, Phil? That's absolutely right. I think the first thing to note is that Rishi Sunak is going to be an economic prime minister for economic times. When there is so much uncertainty about the cost of living crisis, you want a prime minister who convinces the public they are in charge of the economy and looking after their best interests. And I think it's those principles that have also uh, led to his cabinet selection perceived competence or perceived unity. He has tried to appoint a range of ministers who served under Johnson, under Truss. He's tried to go for people with experience, like bringing Michael Gove back into cabinet, which I know surprised one or two within Westminster. He's found a role, albeit not a big one, or one she said to be particularly happy with, 
uh, for Penny Mordaunt as well, his main leadership rival. Um, bringing back the likes of Dominic Raab, Suella Braverman. There are some controversial decisions in there. I don't know, though, that it necessarily speaks to an overall strategy. I actually think there's such a dearth of talent at the top of the Conservative Party that Sunak didn't actually have too much choice in terms of the cabinet he chose. But where he did have decisions to make, he generally played it fairly safe and with the idea of perceived unity, competence and experience foremost in his mind. Yeah, I think you're right. There's a number of names in there that we've uh, seen round the block numerous times over the last few years, some in Johnson's government, some in uh, Truss's government. Um, Penny Morton, as you said, retaining her place as uh, leader of the House of Commons. Uh, I was kind of expecting to see a more prominent role for her, just with her having been uh, Rishi Sunak's kind of most prominent uh, rival in, in terms of getting the leadership, but she's ended up back where she was. If I was Morden, I'd feel insulted. I've talked about the lack of talent, and you look at people like James Cleverly in top positions, and you have to wonder, if you're Penny Morden, do you not think you're better than him? Do you not think you deserve a better job than him? I think the last two Conservative leaders haven't quite known what to do with Morden, and as kind of the face of the One Nation side of the Conservative Party, not giving her the position she perhaps deserves could be something that comes back to bite Rishi. Yeah, I think possibly the, the one that springs out to me is the uh, position of Home Secretary. That feels like that would have been a good fit for Morton. Mm. Also, with her replacing Suella Braverman, who uh, was uh, booted out of Liz Truss's government for breaching the ministerial code. And yet, strangely, she has found herself returning to the government in exactly the same role, in spite of Liz Truss's aides coming out and saying that it was absolutely ludicrous um, to bring her back. You know, there she is. So what do you think the strategy is there? Is she is she just trying to mm. pander to the right wing of the party? It's a head-scratcher. It does seem to have played very well in the right-wing press. I saw a headline in the Telegraph this morning, often called the Tory Graph, because it really is one of the most committed Conservative newspapers, and it read, Thank God, Suella Braverman is back. <laughs> so whilst this might confuse you or I, this is perhaps an attempt to play to the base, those core Conservative supporters who don't want to feel like their interests and the type of politicians they rally behind are going to be ignored in the Sunak era. Let's think about policies, though. I've mentioned, obviously, Sunak's economic prowess and experience. What do you think his priorities will be when it comes to fixing the economy? Well, I mean, he made it very clear, even on the doorstep of Number 10, when he made his inaugural speech, um, having just been named as Prime Minister, he said mistakes were made in the last government. He was obviously very careful not to directly name his predecessor, but I think the... uh, Mm. The inferred message was pretty clear that it was the previous government that had caused a lot of the difficulties that we now find ourselves in. And it's absolutely in line with what Rishi Sunak was saying over the summer with regards to the economy. Liz Truss was very keen that we should move to a low tax, low welfare state. Rishi Sunak was saying in these times, that is just not the right approach. We have to, we we can't be afraid to raise taxes to keep that revenue coming into the exchequer and putting it back into the pockets of those who need it the most. And he was, you know, kind of broadly shot down for that at the time. But he's kind of been proven right in that respect. Um, and so that, I think, is going to be his main sort of aim, over, certainly over the next few weeks and months, is trying to reassure international financial markets that the UK is a trustworthy economy, that it can be run responsibly by reversing all of those fiscal measures. Uh, we've seen with uh, Jeremy Hunt's recent announcement, just before the end of the Liz Trust Premiership, that a lot of those measures were being scrapped. And um, some of those that Rishi Sunak had in mind in terms of raising uh, corporation tax, 
we would expect those to be maintained, I would think. And uh, they've also announced that the budget that was due to come uh, in the next few days is now going to be delayed until mid-November to give them presumably a bit more time to put together uh, what will at least appear to be a well-thought-out fiscal strategy. I think that's sensible. The trust strategy, the Kwartang strategy, it never felt thought through enough. Allegedly, they didn't consult many civil servants or ministers and kind of rushed a plan that seemed flawed from the start, dead on arrival, and ultimately killed her time as prime minister. But we know Rishi doesn't agree with Liz. We know he didn't agree with Boris, and that's why he resigned from his cabinet. So it's going to be quite interesting to see who he does agree with. I don't think he has much choice but to agree with Jeremy Hunt and to continue that process the new chancellor started when he began overturning the very brief system of trustonomics that threatened to uh, dominate our economic system in the United Kingdom, but now will be remembered only as an incredibly short-lived experience. On other policies then, Sunak is a little bit harder to pin down, isn't he? Outside of the economy, what do you think his main aims will be in terms of implementing law in the UK? I mean, I mean, it's tough to really answer the question. I mean, if we were to if we were to base ourselves e- exclusively on what he had to say during his most recent campaign to become prime minister, then we would have quite literally nothing to say because he made absolutely no comment. There was no uh, policy announcement. There was no sense of direction other than essentially just a continuation of what he said in the summer. So that really is all we've got to go on. Let's you know look back to the summer and uh, see what he was talking about. So he um, he made a few comments about the environment, um, about, uh, you know, he, he enjoyed referencing his children's uh, fascination for the environment, and so he's possibly going to be taking a more responsible environmental stance compared to mm. Liz Truss, um, who, uh, for example, removed the moratorium on fracking, and so um, uh, made it quite clear that, you know, it doesn't matter what, what the source of the fuel is or what, what um, environmental damage that might cause, we've just got to get the fuel into people's cars. Rishi Sunak Mm. is uh, taking a more environmentally friendly approach on that. They've already announced that the moratorium on fracking will remain in place, so fracking will remain outlawed in the UK. Um, In terms of social issues, again, he's been pretty light on details, other than saying that he does support the Rwanda policy, uh, the the so-called Rwanda policy, I I suppose we should say, which is the uh, policy of uh, deporting asylum seekers to Rwanda. He does support the policy, in theory. He wants to see it through. I think in Sunak we see a Prime Minister who's going to be a little bit like Gordon Brown. The economy is so bad at the moment, he really can't afford to focus on anything else. And unlike Brown, I'm not sure he would if he could. That being said, do you see the next general election being as disastrous for him as 2010 was for Gordon Brown? Well, I think... At the moment, I think that very much depends on when the general election actually takes place. If we assume that Rishi Sunak doesn't buckle under pressure from uh, from opposition, and indeed, you know, if the if the polling is reliable, then the vast majority of the voting public, if he resists that pressure and waits until 2024, then people will have the chance to judge him on his performance with the economy. I do kind of wonder how many people will see through kind of any kind of improvement, because if, if there is any kind of improvement in the economy, then, you know, the Conservatives and Rishi Sunak will be keen to say, you know, I came in with the terrible economic situation and I made it better. But frankly, it, it couldn't get much worse at this stage. So I wonder how many people will, you know, kind of see through that and, um, you know, be able to decide, you know, is it really a dramatic uh, improvement? Has it made a tangible improvement to my life? I'm thinking mainly of people 
you know, who are really living on the breadline, who are trying to figure out how they're going to be able to pay their energy bills this winter, or even whether they're going to be able to turn the radiator on, you know, they're going to want to see concrete changes, tangible changes in their life. And so that's what Rishi Sunak's going to need to deliver if he wants to win those people over. According to the current polling, he will fare much better in an election than Liz Truss would, but it's still a case of damage limitation mm. at this stage. The expectation is that Labour will emerge as the largest party at the next election. And so for Rishi Sunak, at the moment, it is a case of damage limitation, I think. Speaking to a lot of former Conservative voters I know, whether that be friends or family members, they seem to be saying, never again, or at least not in the short term. A lot of them are regretting that 2019 vote. Even quite committed Conservatives who I know, who have voted for them multiple times, seem to be saying they would now prefer... Keir Starmer's brand of competence over the uncertainty that surrounds Rishi Sunak or really any Conservative Prime Minister after the turmoil of the last few months. Now, we've been trying to pin down Sunak's ideology and his policies, and in the next A-level link of the day, we're going to be looking at exactly that. How does Sunak help you answer an A-level question about Conservative Party ideology? Waxing Political with Phil and Connor. A-level examiners are obsessed with political ideology, and there have been more questions about conservative ideology in recent years than have been conservative prime ministers in recent months. As a result of this, you're going to want as much AO1 as possible, information, knowledge, and examples, to answer that frequently asked question of whether the conservatives are more Thatcherite or more one nation. And that's where Rishi Sunak comes in. Rishi Sunak could easily be argued to be a one-nation conservative. Someone who reflects the principles of Benjamin Disraeli, who said that the role of the Conservative Party was to elevate the condition of the people and to help the poorest in society. As Chancellor, Sunak's furlough scheme and his introduction of the £20 additional universal credit could be argued to do exactly that. However, this is also something that is fairly easily argued against. That £20 additional universal credit was quickly scrapped, and the Conservative Party are now so far from One Nation values that there was a huge group of Conservative MPs from the One Nation side of the party who refused to support a candidate in the recent leadership election, believing there was no one who matched their values and beliefs. The far stronger argument is that the Conservative Party is now dominated by Thatcherism, and Rishi Sunak is yet another example of that. Both recent leadership contexts were characterised as a race to the right, with candidates such as Sunak, Truss and Kemi Badenoch competing to be seen as the Iron Lady incarnate. Sunak has described his own economic policies as common sense Thatcherism, and from a welfare perspective, frequently voted against raising benefits in the House of Commons. The counter-argument to this is more complicated, but perhaps more interesting. Sunak could be seen to reflect a political principle called pragmatism. MPs such as Steve Baker and Sajid Javid switched their support from Liz Truss in the summer to Rishi in October. And that's not because they suddenly agreed with everything he said. That was because from a pragmatic perspective, they were thinking about the survival of the party, who was most likely to unite the members and to bring them success in the next general election. This suggests that political parties like the Conservatives aren't based on any ideological principles, such as one nation or factorism, but rather they choose the leader who gives them the best chance of success, existing in a post-ideological world where that is far more significant than beliefs when it comes to a political party. Now that that's been discussed, let's go back to the podcast. 
Waxing Political with Phil and Connor. Right then, that's about it for uh, our first outing of the series of Waxing Political. How do you think it's gone on this first one, Phil? Well, it could have been a lot worse, Connor. My only hope for the podcast is we last a little bit longer than Liz Truss. So if we can get to six weeks worth of podcasting, I'll be a happy man. Yeah, I think that's a good uh, target to aim for. You know, if we can, I mean, I suppose technically we, uh, we we don't have any listeners yet. Fingers crossed somebody does actually listen to this. But, um, you know, Liz Truss was eventually booted out after six weeks by her supporters, allegedly. So if we can, if we can last longer than that without being booted out by our own listeners, then uh, I think we'll be in good shape. Now we've got something to aim for. I thank you all for your support. I know Connor does as well. And we're looking forward to catching you on the next episode, aren't we? Absolutely, yes. Thank you very much to anyone who listened to this. Hopefully it's been useful for you. And we look forward to seeing you again soon. Bye-bye for now.